BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey everybody, Holden here. And I'm Jake. And we are so excited to tell you about the last podcast network, Country Jamboree in Nashville, Tennessee, at the historic Ryman Auditorium on June 18th. Holy shit, Jake, this is going to be amazing. Now I know what you're thinking, what is a Country Jamboree for a podcast network? Well, it's a (laughs) super show where literally all the shows from the last podcast network will be gracing the stage. We're talking the OG boys, last podcast on the left, page seven with uh, Holden McNeely, uh, Wizard and the Bruiser with also Holden McNeely, No Dogs in Space, Brighter Side, Fraudsters. Fraudsters. Someplace underneath, the story must be told. Fraudsters. It's going to be an incredible show. Fraudsters is definitely going to be there. It's going to be an incredible show. Come check it out. Again, that's Nashville, Tennessee, June 18th, Ryman Auditorium, Last Podcast Network, Country Jamboree. Don't miss it. Tickets available now. My name is Jake. I can't tell you my last name. I can't tell you where I live because there's a threat out there. It could be you. It could be your parents. It's up to us to save them. Also, a lion ripped my kneecaps off and I had to feel every waking second of it. Also, while that was happening, my friend was stuck in a time loop for 8,000 years and could only hear his own screams in his mind. Also, I had to fight a wave of aliens, but the aliens were actually babies. And as soon as I figured out that they were babies, a different evil alien uh, killed all of them. Hey, it's me, a talking eagle. And I'm here to say, don't smoke marijuana cigarettes, kids, or you'll lose your job at the post office just like I did. Right? First of all, it's a red-tailed hawk. Second of all, you have to be way more traumatized. And third of all, how dare you bring up the not-safe-for-kid topic of marijuana? You can't talk about marijuana in a children's book. Uh, Yeah, genocide, sure. sure. Yeah, suicidal ideation, sure. Yeah, uh, the nuking of several major cities by the Chinese, sure. (laughs) But you can't talk about weed in a scholastic children's book. Oh, my God, Jake. I am just trying to lighten the mood here because I will just have to Holden, there is no lightening the mood. I've been psychically traumatized. My soul has been bruised a little bit by the uh, contents of it. You know, when you were like, hey, let's do the Animorphs. I was like, oh, oh whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, do not thing. put that on me. Do not put that on me. <laughs> you were like, hey, 
what do you not want to do? And I was like, Animorphs. He was like, that's what we're definitely doing. Because I'm Jake and I'm mean. I'm just kidding. We always, I keep joking. Holden, Jake, Jake, Holden, you're being a real, that I always, you're being I always a real Visser 3 right now, Holden. You're just <laughs> Visser 3 it up left and right on this podcast. This topic came to be because uh, our Sunday study group. Go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew and find out how hey. you can join those weekly streams. Yeah. We think of topics sometimes. We, we have a kind of upcoming schedule meetings over on the Discord. And Animorphs was in the mix, and our fans were so enraptured by this series and so excited that we were like, well, we never read these books, but there's got to be something there. Right. And it turns out uh, this book series, running from like 1996 to 2000, has everything horrible. (laughs) And I just want to say, for the record, uh, Jake brought this up to my, brought this to my attention. Uh, I constantly throw him under the bus (laughs) on the, on this show. And it's very true. And um, uh, usually it's, that's not actually the case. So uh, we're here to do Animorphs. And Jake, the reason why I'm hesitant, you know, definitely for me, hey, I was a Goosebumps kid. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? I was a Calvin and Hobbes boy child. You know what I mean? I I fucked around with a little bit of a Garfield anthology. It's the Scholastic oh, Book Club. Yeah, you got it. I fucked with the far side, bro. Mm-hmm. I was fucking had all those things. But uh, for me, um, Animorphs, I think, you know, it got me to thinking like how interesting it is as a kid. Like one year you were the perfect audience member for something. And then literally if you are one year off from this thing, it is you will never even pick it up or touch it. And I feel like that was Animorphs for me. It, it really became popular right around the time. I think we were, you know, moving on. We were, I was, I was, you know, experimenting with da, 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 da. You know what I mean? I was starting to listen to like gangster rap and experiment with marijuana cigarettes and, you know, those sorts of things. And it just passed me by. It just, it was just, just after my time. And now I'm bummed looking back because you know what, dude? Goosebumps for fucking baby wigs, bro. Animorphs is where the real shit is at. And I had no idea, dude. This shit is crazy. I would have loved this shit as a kid. I'm kind of bummed I missed out on this Animorphs party. So it was really fun to get to do this for a topic on the show, for sure. I am in a very similar boat. I was 100% on board the uh, Goosebumps train. That was like my young adult Scholastic Book Club series. And by the time Animorphs was kicking into gear, I just wasn't like, uh, I just wasn't, uh, it just wasn't my vibe. And here's the thing though, it's because those covers and the, yeah. the text, it makes it seem like it's just some like Saturday morning Power Rangers ass, like yes. we're, the, we're the fun animal team. Like the same, I assumed the exact same plot line happened in every single book. Like a kid realizes they can turn into an animal and then like, the shit that comes with that. And, and you know, it was, I, I just assumed it was like that, just really like formulaic and everything. Come to find out, it's this like crazy overarching thing that, that you know, you're like collecting different animals to like warg into. It's just one team of kids, this insane, like sweeping sci fi tale. And, uh, you know, obviously it has its, its slings and arrows as well as a series, especially after around book 25 when. It gets heavily picked up by ghostwriters and uh, loses quite a bit of the quality. And so it's not like it's just this like incredible, perfect thing, but it is way swinging for the fences, way more than I ever, ever uh, assumed it did. Well, there's a lot of things going on because the 
publishing schedule of these books were at a breakneck pace. Like, uh, I believe it was around a book a month that the authors were expected to churn out. Um, the authors themselves, uh, even despite the uh, heavy reliance on ghostwriters, uh, in interviews, they talk about how they provided uh, plot outlines for everybody. And sometimes when a ghostwriter would come back with something that didn't fit what they wanted, rather than go through the back and forth, they would just buckle down and write like a couple hundred pages just to like smooth it out and keep it tonally consistent. Um, and what really shocks me is that this is years before Lost. This is years before the Gata Battlestar Galactica reboot. This is years before Game of Thrones. And what we have here is a deep, serialized story with a cast of characters that are fighting a gigantic threat that can be anywhere and is smart about it. And the level of strategizing and kind of countermaneuvers, this really is a tale of a, uh, a guerrilla war on a galactic scale. And then we get into stuff like the Krayak and the Elemist, and then that just throws everything out, out of whack. But um, this is a deeply involved story. And each even inconsequential chapter has an effect on our characters. And it's, honest to God, I the, um, the, the weird sense of loss that you have, uh, I share. Uh, watching essays on YouTube about people talking about Animorphs and like the amount of just, it affected people really deeply. And it's, it's very weird. I've, I read a couple of the books. I read uh, the first two books through the graphic novel adaptation. I read uh, The Encounter, which is the first book through the point of view of Tobias, who is a Nothlet, Nothlet, forced to live as a red-tailed hawk. And I read, uh, the people who know, know, I read uh, book 22, the solution, the conclusion of the David trilogy. Ah, uh -huh, yes, the 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 legendary David trilogy that is absolutely fucking terrifying. And throughout each of these books, uh, there's like moments of insane darkness. Uh, uh, upon realizing that Tobias is like losing his humanity uh, as a hawk, there's a a very intense scene where he basically they don't say as much. But he is trying to commit suicide in the middle of a mall while his friends are pleading with him not to smash his face against a glass pane. Um, you know, he's saying stuff like, just keep flapping. Go faster, faster. I'll wake up. I'll wake up. This will be over. I'll just close my eyes and this will all be over. Like, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, totally. But then there's also that weird part where that talking eagle keeps telling kids not to experiment <laughs> with marijuana cigarettes and it's just like, we don't need this in here. It's a sweeping sci-fi epic. You know, why does he have, and why does he always sound like all the characters I ever do on the show? Hey! It's me, the talking eagle! I mean, come on. Like, can we get some new interpretations here? Can we get some new additions? It's, uh, it's very strange. The thing that I have realized about Animorphs is I have dubbed it the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure of Young Adult Literature because one of the things that uh, can happen, and there's going to be tons of spoilers in this podcast, but as I have stated in our JoJo's episode, you can say as many spoilers as you want about this series because as soon as, even knowing what you know, reading on the page the fucked up things that are happening in this book that is ostensibly for 
children, for nine-year-old to 12-year-old children, will leave you mouth agape, shattered mentally. Mm -hmm. And not as obviously not as shattered as the PTSD that almost all of our characters in this book has. Um, I will say reading the books, it is interesting because I, I, you know, I read interviews, I read articles, I watched a lot of essays and people will say things like, well, there's uh, the character Jake and he's the leader. Uh, He always knows what to do, even when there's tough decisions to make. And then I started reading the books and just there on the page, it's like, and there's Jake. He is the leader. He is the one who makes tough, de- <laughs> even when there's tough decisions to make. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, because they have to do all this catch up every book and like kind of lay out who everyone is. Uh-huh. But that level of bluntness is like kind of, you know, it helps for kids. You know, there's there's not a lot of room for subtlety. These books are really short. They're, you know, at double spaced at the, uh, basically. Um, but each individual book, reads like an episode of prestige television. There's twists, there's wins, there's losses. You see these characters struggle. I it's it's a truly just breathtaking piece of work and the idea that all of this was done as like a fe- you know there's there's Hasbro Transformer figures of these characters. There's Taco Bell t- tie-in toys from 1999 mm-hmm. where you can get a little Cassie and she turns into an anteater. Like there's a mm-hmm. board game. There were awful video games made about this. This was just if if you weren't if you weren't reading these books, this was just some other kids property fad that you just like ignored. And if you did read these books, you were forever changed. For it's sure. I mean, yeah. Crazy. One thing R.L. Stein never did was teach children about the horrors of war. But the thing that I love about, and I'll have the quotes to show it later on in the episode, uh, uh, but what I love about the, this uh, author team, this husband and wife team, is, you know, they, they were staunchly uh, uh, for not talking down to kids and really shooting them straight on a lot of more challenging themes. And also, like, kids like warped crazy stuff especially if it's in book form they can fill it in with their imagination you're not showing them graphic images they want to hear about uh, a child's uh, cannibalistic thoughts about his friends because he turned into a cannibalistic alien mm-hmm. uh, a race of aliens uh, you know it, it's it's fascinating and, and uh, I think really just blew a lot of kids away because it was like, uh, yeah, I really do think, and I, I don't know if I said this on the episode, I think I said it right before this episode, I really do think that this was like this nice little trick for kids because parents would look at the cover of the book and be like, that's such, uh, that's just, this is just some goofy whatever thing. And of course you can read that, Billy, like it's just so, some silly kid turned into a hawk. And then, you know, uh, but they they secretly were like, enjoying some real heavy shit uh you know that that the parents didn't know about it was like the perfect little treat for kids especially around that age like on the cover where the animals morph into their animal forms uh it's very it's just in your head you're like okay so like they go it's time to animorph and they like swirl around and they become an animal and it's like a fun power fantasy in the books depending on the complexity of the morph the child is left uh, quivering as his bones crack and deform and his facial features melt for anywhere up to 10 minutes at a time. Like, from the <laughs> get-go, this is not ah, a power fantasy. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Well, let's get into it. 
the uh, the book series that would be turned into a TV series and possibly a movie. We'll talk about that as well. We're talking about the Animorphs, a sci-fi series of children's books written by husband and wife team Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant under the name K.A. Applegate and published by Scholastic. Each book is told in first person from one of the six main characters' perspectives, and it consists of 54 books published between 1996 and 2001 and is about six kids and an alien who obtain the ability to transform into an a- any animal they touch, which they use to battle a secret alien invasion of Earth by a parasitic race of aliens resembling large slugs called yurks. Is it yurks or yurks? I always hear yurk like rhymes with jerk. That's what I've been hearing. They can take over human bodies. So like a bit of an invasion of the body snatchers in there. The whole alien... Don't worry, war. kids. Don't worry, kids. The human host is acutely aware of all the horrors that they're doing and are <laughs> powerless to stop it, no matter how hard they struggle. Don't worry. They they go out of their way to explain what a living hell it is to be consumed by a... Yurk. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I had no idea there was a whole, like, alien war happening in this series at all is just a testament to, like, how much of a, like... Wonderful little secret this was for so many people, and, and and how it's unfortunate that I think a lot of people missed out who might have enjoyed it. I wonder if I would have been more into sci-fi growing up if I had caught on to Animorphs, which was never a big thing for me early on. It was something I got into later. But here we go. Let's talk about them. Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant. Uh, Catherine Applegate grew up in Michigan and was obsessed with animals from an early age. She said, I loved animals growing up. I had extraordinarily tolerant parents, fortunately. Big menagerie, mostly dogs and cats. But at about age 10, I became the first person in East Grand Rapids, Michigan to have gerbils. And they were quite exotic then. And Sandy and Max liked each other and continued their happy marriage for some time. And it was, uh, and I was inundated with baby, baby ger- gerbils. So I promptly became that girl who sold gerbils to the world. When I got into high school, I worked for a vet for a couple of years and really enjoyed that. I actually thought I wanted to be a vet. Fiction seemed really pointless to me, but I gradually came around. Michael Grant has a pretty crazy uh, little background leading up to him meeting uh, uh, Catherine Applegate. He was a military kid. He was constantly moving around. He attended 10 schools in five states in the U.S. while also spending a stint of his childhood in France. And he grew up pretty poor. He ended up dropping out of school at the age of 15. He got a job at Toys R Us with a fake ID, but after a few months, he quit and traveled Europe for some time. Cutting back to Applegate, she actually hated reading as a kid and would tell people that whenever she did like little talks with kids, she'd be like, adults, cover your ears. And she would tell the kids, I actually hated reading when I was your age. Um, And she found it kind of boring, but that would change over time. Applegate said, there's a book out there that's like your best friend. And when you find it, your life will change. For me, that book was Charlotte's Web. Eventually, Applegate got into writing her own work and started out as a ghostwriter for a series called Sweet Valley Twins, which was a spinoff from the Sweet Valley High series of adult, of young adult novels. It was about identical twins who live in the fictional town of Sweet Valley, California. Applegate said, I wrote 17 Sweet Valley Twins, and I ghosted lots of books for Disney and wrote Little Mermaid, Horse Books, Girls Who Love Horse, Loved Horses, Horses Who Loved Girls. You name it. <laughs> That's a real quote. You name it. I wrote it. And I think the, uh, what was so great about Goosebumps and Animorphs and Babysitter's Club, those monthly series, is that a kid got hooked. And then you could go right back and get the next story. 
and that's interesting. But I do think that series really help kids go back to a familiar place, a comfortable place. I do that. Sometimes you just got to watch a sitcom or go back to a book you've read a hundred times before because you need that comfort. So characters evolve in a series, but a little more slowly. Things happen a little differently. Oh, I just want to say Catherine Applegate, also uh, under the pen name Pat uh, Polari, uh, wrote the Barfarama series, which was another weird scholastic freak show thing. <laughs> if you look up the cover of like a kid eating a burrito filled with cockroaches, uh, you'll be like, oh, fuck that thing. <laughs> uh, and I just was so tickled that even like that buried memory was woken up with research for this episode. So before she even got into writing this series, she meets Michael. She's finishing up college. Uh, Michael just ends up moving in down the street. He actually, though, uh, was totally living under a freeway overpass. Just before they met, he ended up getting a job as a waiter and moved into a little apartment just right by her. Saw her out the window of his apartment and decided he wanted to meet her. So he introduces himself by going and knocking on her door under the false premise of needing to borrow a can opener. (laughs) This little moment led to drinks at a nearby bar. And then they led to them literally living together just 24 hours later. It was essentially love at first sight. And uh, so they get married in 1979. Uh, but, but around that time, maybe a little before that time, essentially Michael just falls backwards into this uh, writing career that he's got going. It, it really is kind of amazing. He's just in proximity to her while she's working on these Sweet Valley Twins mm. ghostwriting gigs and essentially just gets way too many gigs at one time. And so she ends up offloading some of the work to him. That's how he got his uh, foray, first foray into the business. It is and, a uh, very, yeah. uh, the duology the du- of uh, Catherine and Michael is very funny to see. Cause like I've been watching interviews with both of them and like Catherine is like the er children's author mom figure. She has like, this, you know, shoulder length, gray hair, just like pleasant and plump and just always so nice and is just like very sweet. And Michael is, in his interviews, shaved head, smoking cigars, cursing up a storm. <laughs> like it's it's like they're two opposite people. And so there's this like fan mythology where like Catherine Applegate just wanted to write about animals that she was just like, I think animals are neat. Uh, wouldn't it be weird if you could see through a cat's eyes? Think about it. Cats can see all sorts of wavelengths that humans can't. Like, just like that thing. And Michael just being like, yeah, and it'd be fucked up if you were in the trenches too, right? Like, you know, you didn't know who to trust. Man against man. Anybody could be an enemy. <laughs> Which is a very much a, uh, you know, that's not how it worked. But the idea that the more wholesome, you know, kids going through problems and having animal adventures is Catherine's side of things. And yeah. the hork bajir fighting against the Krayak <laughs> are, is uh, Michael's influence. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's more complicated than that. Catherine said, I really wanted to find a way to get kids into the heads of various species and decided that a science fiction premise was the way to do this. But I believe you, Jake. Mm. I completely believe you that Michael is the one, yeah, sort of like, and then genocide <laughs> happens. You're like, wait, I just wanted to be like, wow, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be a tiger for an afternoon? (laughs) But I guess we're going to go that direction. So, But Applegate loves to do a large amount of research for her books because she both finds it to be enjoyable, and you'll always hear this from writers. 
It's a great way to procrastinate. So she did stuff like visit a raptor center where, where they rehabilitate injured birds and worked hard to capture what it would be like to have the perspective of any given animal. Applegate said, when Tobias becomes a hawk, I want the reader to see the, wor- to see the world as a hawk might see it, to soar on the warm breezes and hurtle toward the ground to make a kill. I mean, they, she does a very good job of that. You really, you can almost <laughs> taste the rat blood between your beak when you read her uh, stunning descriptions of hawk life. For the aliens and other sci-fi elements, she pulled from her favorite works of the genre. Applegate said, the Yurks were straight out of sci-fi standards like Invasion of the Body of Statures and Star Trek, although the name is a wink-wink to Lord of the Rings, as the elvish word for orc is basically Yurk, with a different spelling. For the Andalites, we originally went more standard issue, thinking we would need something accessible. Uh, Jean Faywell, our amazing publisher Scholastic basically said, too familiar, which we took as a challenge. Oh, yeah, too familiar? How about blue-furred, four-legged, two-armed, stalk-eyed, mouthless, scorpion-tailed psychic? <laughs> Seen one of those before? No, we didn't think so. So, yeah, that is the, the species of the alien species that's actually working with the kids. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, there's the in the first book, uh, the, uh, while cutting through an abandoned construction site, and you best believe they will remind you that it was an abandoned construction site <laughs> in every book. Uh, they stumble across the dying alien Elfingor, who gives them uh, their morphing powers and explains the direness of Earth's situation and tells them, just hang on, Andalites are on the way. And then uh, a couple of books later, uh, they receive a distress beacon from uh, Elfengor's kid brother, kind of. He's a lieutenant. He's like a little, he's a lower ranked younger Andalite named Axe. Uh, whose name is, I can't fully pronounce. I'm going to try. Dear God. Oh, God. Please, please don't yell at me. Um, Axelidal. Uh, Axelidal. Oh, God. It's too, it's too much. It's too much. I, okay. Captain Prince Axamili S. Garuth Isthil. There we go. <laughs> uh, he was uh, the younger brother of Elfengor Cyrenal Shamtul, and the son of Nurlin Serenal Kuraf. <laughs> I hope that I hope that helps. Uh, these are the blue weird aliens with the peaceful eyes, the weird eyeball stalks, the pointy ears, and the horse bodies that you see in a lot of Animorphs promotional artwork. And I guess we should explain some of the rules here if you've never heard of this series and are quite curious, like like I've been. So yeah, they've got this like cube, right? Mm-hmm. And and that gives them the power to uh, turn into these different. But they can essentially they as long as what they have to concentrate, right? And they and and touch the they have the process is called acquiring, and you have to acquire a morph before you can turn into an animal. 
uh, and that involves a uh, touch with a living uh, animal. You can't just like find a hair sample. And this lulls the animal into a trance-like state for uh, a couple of seconds up to a minute, which is how you get access to stuff like lions and bears and eagles and all this like cool stuff. Uh, the cool animals, those are called their battle morphs because they're used primarily for combat. Um, and so once you have acquired the morph, it then takes a few minutes to actually physically change your body. There's a great sequence in uh, book three where they are turning into trout and it is, sounds horrifying as uh, their skin form becomes scales and their lungs disappear and shrivel up and they're gasping with no oxygen. It's, it's a horror show. Uh, and the only problem is that if you stay in morph for more than two hours, and it is a hard two hours, a couple minutes early, you're safe. Yeah. One minute after, you are fucked forever. Yeah. You are that stuck. That is the, definitely the most dramatic rule that they use in like really intense ways that we'll get into uh, in a little mm -hmm. bit in this episode. It is really wild they added that rule because, man... Do some kids get trapped in some animal forms for the rest of their lives, which is like really fucked up. Well, the so. Elemist helps out. It's it's complicated. Um, but uh, so with those things intact, uh, they are free to uh, change morphs, but they have to go back to human in between morphs. So they can't just be like form of a housefly, form of a whale, and then just like smash somebody uh, from like a, a thousand feet above the air. Like there's uh -huh. hard limitations. These are like not superheroes. These are at best like kind of helpful uh, tools that these kids have to use to right. take on an unknown army of brain slugs. So one of the greatest strengths of this series is that these authors never get too preachy and show respect to the young reading audience. Abigail said, it's an interesting question whether authors think about their audiences. And I was talking to some other authors about this recently. My theory is that we do, or at least I do. I'm very conscious of the audience for whom I'm writing. I think school visits have helped me tremendously with that. I'm a parent, but my kids are older now. And I just need a refresher course every so often on what a third or fourth grader is thinking. Invariably, I'm surprised by how incredibly idealistic they are, how kind, how thoughtful. They tolerate no BS. I mean, they'll tell you if they don't like a book, not afraid to critique. And when they love a book, they love a book so much. You are a rock star. It's life-changing when that happens. So I like to think about those kids. She also said, neither Michael, my husband and co-author, nor I ever wanted to be teaching anything or at least be caught doing it. Animorphs was a sugary snack that turned out to be full of vitamins. But we wanted it first and foremost to be fun. The more philosophical or educational elements were in service to the story, not the other way around. Goals number one, two, and three were to have readers snapping through the pages and forgetting to breathe. And way down around goal number four was, hey, let's consider the nature of consciousness. <laughs> it, is in, it is very weird how the books always seem to like do these gear shifts because yeah, there is tons of like fun animal facts where, you know, someone will be like, uh, Hey, I turned into a flea. Did you know that a flea can jump over like 40 times its body? Like that's like if a human being could like jump over the Eiffel tower, that's crazy. And then <laughs> 50 pages later, it's like, if we be like, does taking a life make you a murderer? If it means that you can save more life. 
this life a finite value or does every kill take something from you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that leads us right into my next section in my notes, which is titled Fucked Up Animorphs Shit. So let's get into it. Uh, I've got some examples of just how dark this series gets. And Jake, feel free to add uh, any of your own. Okay, so let me just lay out. This is what the team makeup is. There is Jake, the leader. Uh, he is the one who is. Uh, Did you see yourself as him? No, by the way, no. <laughs> I, I am a much. I'm much more of a Marco. Jake is the leader. He's the Leonardo. I'm a, Ra- I'm a Rachel. I'm the bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel has a heart of gold and a blood and a lust for blood, and that makes her one of the fan favorite characters. Jake is the leader. Uh, his personal stake is that his brother is a known yerk, and so he has to be extra careful because he knows for a fact the threat is in his home, and if he slips up for even a moment, they will be on him and his whole family will be dead. Uh, Rachel is Jake's cousin and was the pretty girl, and the books are there. They're like, Rachel is pretty. We're, she has blonde hair and is pretty. She likes shopping and gymnastics, and uh, the only time she's ever felt truly alive is when she crushed uh, your controller under her giant elephant hooves. And now, all she really wants is to feel the adrenaline rush of combat. <laughs> she has one of the most uh, remarkable arcs. She really imprinted on a generation of fans because she struggles with what it means. There's uh, moments where uh, Jake calls on her to do like the fucking wet works for the Animorphs. And she's like, is this how people see me? Am I this dark presence? Like, who am I in this world if I'm capable of such horrendous things? Uh, Cassie is the bleeding heart of the group. She is the best at morphing. She has uh, wide swaths of veterinary knowledge. Her parents are vets. Uh, It's thanks to her that they have access to all of these morphs because her, like I said, her parents run a vet and uh, she and their parents also have access to a zoo. Uh, and she's kind of the conscious of the group. And she kind of uh, is always there to be like, wait a minute, guys, this feels fucked up. There's an amazing arc with her where she is sick and tired of the battle, sick and tired of the moral compromises, sick and tired of looking at herself in the mirror. And she tries to make peace with a single yerk after an encounter with one of them. And she's like, maybe, just maybe, if we can come to terms, that's like a better step forward than a hundred battles. And she literally agrees to trap herself in the body of a worm uh, because uh, the Yerk explains, hey, our species is parasites. When we're not inside a body, we are blind in a muck. We don't feel anything. It's a nightmare. And we yearn to experience life. And she's like, oh, that's fucked up. Oh, I never saw it that way. She only escapes when it turns out the, uh, yeah, the bug she infects is a caterpillar. And despite being a nothlet, uh, once she metamorphizes into a blood, a butterfly, it like resets her clock and she can escape. Mm-hmm. But like, so she is this like real uh, conscious of the group. Marco doesn't give a fuck. Marco is the sassy Raphael. He is always making wisecracks. He loves making pop culture references of the late 90s. Uh, just if if you've ever wanted to read the words Noah Wiley in a book from 1997, you best look up Marco's lines in these books. And despite his sarcastic, cynical nature, he's like the strategist. He's the one that like just assumes the worst is going to happen. And by default, He's actually the one that comes up with a lot of the most clever plans and like notices when traps are happening. Um, Cassie, Marco, oh, Tobias, 
poor Tobias, punished Tobias, the red-tailed hawk, was uh, just this picked-on nerd who wasn't even friends with any of these people. They just kind of let him hang around because they felt sorry for him. Uh, In the first book, he gets trapped as a hawk, uh, tries to kill himself in a mall, and kind of becomes the reconnaissance guy, the kind of... uh, He's like, he's the one who suffered the most consequences earliest. And so he has the most battle hardened view. He is a predator. He is a creature of the sky. He kills to eat. And so he is the most ruthless. And then there's Axe, Captain Prince Axe the Andalite, who uh, is actually a source for a lot of comedy. He's kind of like the data of the group because he's a fish out of water. He doesn't understand earth customs. He like is kind of a robotic a uh, kind of logical sensibility about him. He just wants to do his duty as an Andalite warrior. And um, that's counterbalanced by the fact that he has to disguise himself as a human in public. And it's the first time he has a human mouth. And so he is obsessed with eating and talking and making all these noises. Uh, a through line throughout the books is that he can he will just almost kill himself by uh, eating Cinnabons because he doesn't realize that human stomachs are finite. (laughs) And so all of these personalities and characters are like bumping against each other, uh, compromising with each other, just trying to survive and live to fight another day against this truly horrifying, unstoppable alien force. What about the seventh Animorph, uh, Jake, of uh, David? Uh, That's my first entry in the uh, fucked up Animorphs shit, the David trilogy, uh, who uh, David joins the team and uh, it becomes clear after a little while that he's actually uh, quite treacherous and uh, pretty just straight up evil. Is he though? Is he though? Because hear me (laughs) out. So... Weirdly enough, at some point, the authors remember that there's a magic cube that can turn people into Animorphs and that they kind of just forgot about it. David, a kid in their class, uh, says, hey, look what I found at the abandoned construction site. And it's the Animorph cube. And they're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. They decide the best way forward is to just uh, tell him the truth about everything and making make him an official member Uh, Almost immediately, his parents are uh, taken and his house is destroyed. Uh, He, I think in their first adventure, when it looks like they're trapped, immediately just goes to Visser 3, the main bad guy, uh, who is also in an Andalite body, and just goes, hey, I'll sell them out. I'll I'll sell all of them out. I fucking just spare me, dude. Spare me, dude. It's fine. I'll, I'll rat them out real fast. I don't give a fuck. And everybody's like, what? And he was like, ha ha, that was my plan. Ha ha. Yeah. Eventually, it's all out war. And David is fucking ruthless. The team decides to become a pod of dolphins to like uh, do reconnaissance on their way to a mission. David shows up as a killer whale and tries to kill him. Uh, David shows up with the corpse of a red hawk and everybody thinks he killed Tobias. He didn't, though. And that comes in super handy. But like they are at any point, he can just rat them out and squash them like a bug. At any point, he can just become a fly, sneak into their room and just like kill them. At one point, this is this is fucking crazy. Uh, a Jake and Rachel's cousin is in a bike accident and it looks like he's about to die. So David sneaks into his hospital, switches places with him, dumps the body 
and just lives with uh, Jake and Rachel's aunt and uncle. And whenever like the adults uh, heads are turned or no one's listening, he's like, I'm fucking David. Your cousin said la 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 <laughs> just to fuck with him. He is a goddamn psychopath. So yeah, yeah. in order to get back at him, they they turn they convince him to turn into a rat. Then they trap him in a cage for long enough so that he stays that way forever. Then abandon him on a tiny island in the middle of the ocean where he's like screaming in in terror and agony uh, at the fact that he's going to be this like lonely rat for the rest of his existence. Uh, Apparently so much so that even years later, uh, passing ships could hear the horrific screams coming from David. I mean, this is like some real you know, straight up like Stephen King shit. <laughs> Dozens of the way at this, uh, that is just that whole chapter is described is described from Rachel's point of view. And she describes in gruesome detail, how he pleaded to for his life. The entire time they were carrying him to the Island. Dozens of books later, for some reason or another, they have to get a hold of David again and they find him on the Island. And he's like, Oh, Hey guys. Hey, how you doing? Oh, great to see you again. Kill me. Kill me, please. Kill me. Kill me. Please kill me. I want to die. And it's left <laughs> unspoken whether or not Rachel does a mercy killing on him. <laughs> uh, the taxons, here's another entry. The taxons are centipede-like creatures that have an intense hunger. There's one story that has Tobias morphing into one, leading him to have intense fantasies about devouring his friends in a horrifically graphic detail. And uh, the only thing, that, uh, of course, the fifth element breaks the spell. Here he... Uh, it's it's his crush on one of the members that gets him to uh, snap out of it. But yeah, just, you know, a book full of cannibalistic fantasies. You know, oh, just well, normal the taxons stuff. are one of the many enslaved races by the Yerks. Uh, they're one of the few that uh, many of them don't even have Yerks in them. They were just promised more food and agree to help them conquer the universe. Uh, in the Andalite Chronicles, there's a couple of Chronicles books, which are uh-huh. kind of longer, hardcover uh, more extrapolated like glimpses into the happenings in the universe before the events of Animorphs. Uh, it gruesomely describes one taxon getting sliced in half by an Andalite scorpion tail and in its dying throes just starts eating its own lower half because its insatiable hunger cannot be quenched. Uh, there's also the hork Bajir, another alien race, which are kind of like these velociraptor ostrich things with like just massive blades all over themselves. Uh, And they are uh, genocided by the Andalites because they're too powerful to uh, be left as weapons for the Yerks. And then it turns out that they were actually a peaceful race that only had the blades to maintain the uh, trees of their home planet and to skim bark off the trees that they used to eat because they were vegetarians. (laughs) Uh, you also have, there's the magic school bus little saga that happens at one point. Essentially, they, the gang gets shrunk down and uh, they end up oh. entering uh, Marco via his nose. At one point, they end up in his stomach where Rachel's eyes get melted away by his by Marco's stomach acid when she gets splashed in the face by it. And uh, she ends up having to turn into a bat in order to regrow her eyes, oh. which honestly is also very upsetting. This is key. <laughs> I, I We did not mention this as part of the Animorph's power set, but any and all physical damage that a Animorph goes through in morph form or even as a uh, in their human form is immediately undone when they morph. So uh, 
the end result is, is that there are incident after incident after incident in which one of these kids, children, are horrifically dismembered, wounded, bleeding, tattered, barely hanging on to life, just completely disfigured and mangled over and over and over again with the attacks and damage being described in full detail. But because they always managed to morph at the last second, technically no kids were hurt in these books and they were safe for Scholastic. (laughs) Uh, Here's an excerpt from the books describing children turning into a lobster. His arms had begun to split open and swell. His eyes were gone, replaced by little black BBs. Jake's face seemed to open up, to split open into a complex mess of valves. I think I would have thrown up seeing that, except that I also no longer had a mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Ugh. Most of the books. <laughs> I got a couple more. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit Here me. we Hit. go. And again, like I said, it's you, you're like, oh my God, this is spoilers. You can know intellectually what is happening. Yeah. And then, but <laughs> while you are reading it, you cannot believe what you are perceiving. Here's just a couple more. In uh, uh, one of the books called The Hidden, an ant walks across the blue box and is able to morph. So as if straight out of a Cronenberg film, the ant begins to morph into Cassie and in the process of becoming a human, can't stop screaming until Cassie has to stomp stomp out a gross ant hybrid version of herself. It's so terrified that it's gaining human consciousness that it literally cannot stop shrieking until it's taken out of its own misery. That is you know, another key just thing book stuff. in the Animorphs uh, kind of uh, canon is that when you morph, the instincts and mind of the animal you are changing to is pretty much in control for the first time you do it. So that uh, if you turn into a lizard, for the first minute, you are a skittering mess of nerves and madness. And the idea is, is that like the, the, it's almost inherently taken as a gift, which is I the first time I read this, I was like, wow, that is really smart. Uh, the kids are like, well, we shouldn't turn into bugs because like, how will we even be able to process the sensory information? We'll probably just go crazy. Mm-hmm. And the the way that a consciousness and perception are related and the fact that like, yeah, if you turn into an octopus, will you even have the wherewithal to even understand what colors and direction and all the things we take for granted about being uh-huh. alive are? It's really that's which is really fascinating stuff. It's just the amount of shit they address in this that like they d- don't need to at all is so cool. No, there I was really a way so to do this where it. they were just fun animal team. Where yeah. it's just like, oh, yeah, form totally. a yeah. grizzly bear. Right. Oh, bother. Looks like I'm about to <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Which is what I thought I was getting into when we went into this episode. I was like, here we go. It's another one. Of, you know what I mean? So, and all of a sudden, I'm just here. Here's my last excerpt. This is from an article on a site called The Spinoff titled, I read all 54 Animorphs books in five days and it almost killed me by Charlie O'Mannon. Here's the here's the quote. Book 33 is officially the most fucked book so far. The whole book is literally just Tobias in a tiny cage getting graphically tortured. He's hooked up to a machine that controls the parts of the brain that induce pain and pleasure and almost goes insane slash dies after receiving heightened alternating doses of painful and pleasant sensations and memories. The thing is, Tobias doesn't get over his torture. Mm -mm. He's able to function in later books, but he's never able to overcome the experience and it haunts him for the rest of the 
series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and another really interesting thing they do here, outside of all this like just terrifying body horror shit, is they uh, super uh, are super open about addressing you know, the horrors of war. As the series continues on and alien races are pitted against each other, the subject of war is handled in a brutal and honest way by the authors. Applegate said, one of our models was the old TV series Combat, which followed a single squad around World War II. We wanted that same tight-knit feel, that same grunt's eye view. We decided early on that this was basically a war story, and we knew if that's what we were doing, then we had to be honest in showing the cost. We wanted to reflect the effects uh, reported by actual soldiers. Some profit from the experience, others are destroyed by it. Jake finds he doesn't know what to do in peacetime, and finds his actions are questioned and even condemned. Cassie finds purpose in helping some of the displaced aliens. Marco works the talk show circuit and gets a TV deal. Tobias is shattered by the loss of Rachel. Spoiler alert, she dies. Uh, Axe returns to his people, a hero. And the ending made a lot of fans upset. Uh, This this whole kind of dystopian... Oh, okay, wait, before we... uh, Okay, all right. (laughs) So... The book kind of so so we're talking about a period of a couple of years. All these stories, all these little missions, uh, a lot of side stories were like, "Oh, the gang go back in time," or like, "Hey, this space god who used to be a bird and then was a gamer and then uh, literally a gamer." There's a key plot point where the god of this universe uh, used to play The Sims or Civ Six and then got godlike powers. Um, takes Tobias back in time where it turns out like the origin story was like uh, precisely engineered to play out the way it did. Uh, there's uh, books where they go back and g- get dinosaur adventures. There's all these things uh, done by a series of ghost writers. I think it's, yeah, books uh, like 25 all the way through 52. Yeah. The authors uh, were, you know, gave the, I think I talked about this before. They gave the right. Yeah, Applegate uh, did outlines. Uh, according to Applegate, quote, the problem for ghosts is that we can't outline very well. So I kept saying, hey, go for it. Go off the reservation. But that didn't happen that much. So the thing where we might find a new angle wasn't being done as often. Not the fault of the ghosts, our fault. And they, they definitely, you know, that's definitely been known. 25 through 53, a lot, most of those were ghost, ghost written. And Applegate's reasoning for that was it was either use ghosts or in the series. Our schedule was 14 books a year, plus other projects. And right around book number 11, Jake, the real life one, was born. They had a they had a son named Jake. Uh, life got more complicated. No sleep because we'd had a SIDS death with a relative. At one point, we hired a girl to basically just bring us cookies because we could never get out. That girl was Ellen Garreau, who went on to be one of our best ghosts. Uh, Applegate, by the way, really blunt. I mean, if you think the, the, you know, the blunt honesty of the Animorphs was just her writing style, no. Also, um, there's a really good Reddit AMA with mm-hmm. her, and she's just so open about, like, she even was like, they were like, how did you keep coming up with all these different things? She would be like, oh, ripped off a bunch of Star <laughs> Trek episode plots. Like, she's, like, so just straight up with, with her, uh, fans and, her, and audiences, and I just really appreciate that about her. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So the end game of the books, uh, the last the last couple of books were written by the OG team. Uh, the fan sites started getting taken over by the Yerks. Uh, there was the the marketing push was called Animorphs Extreme, and the things that happen in this end game are insane. Uh, at one point, uh, Jake dumps seventeen thousand uh, un brain snatched yurks into the void of space uh it's considered a war crime by the hague there's he t- has to like order the killing of his own brother because uh he's his brother's yurk has been like moving up the ranks this is one of the things as i've been posting on twitter about hey here's a bunch of fucked up shit i learned about animorphs is people going when are you going to get to the disabled kids army when <laughs> when and it is learned that the Yerks do not target anybody with physical disabilities because those would be unsuitable hosts, making them the only group of people that the uh, Animorphs could trust with Animorph powers as auxiliary Animorphs to help serve as cannon fodder and shock troops for the final battle. They go into deep detail that some kids get cured, other kids uh, are trying to unmorph, but are left in their disabled bodies on the battlefield and die horrible deaths. This is the, and they discuss the morality of this. It was technically Cassie's idea, but like shit hits the fan. Like these are not the plucky kids we saw in the first episode. They have grown cold and numb to the horrors of war and just want to finally free the planet. It's fucking nuts and the book ends as you described with several of our characters shattered dead left to the wind and it ends on this cliffhanger where jake knowing no longer what to do anymore basically just jumps in a spaceship and tries to just like find a new evil to fight and this left fans very confused very dissatisfied uh you know these were kids that wanted a triumphant conclusion and I, I, the, and the whole reason I jumped in here in the first place is because I think you're about to read the letter that K. Applegate wrote in response to the fans yeah. that did not like this, honestly, downer of an ending. It's uh, one of two quotes. The first one, I'll, I'll do the letter second. First one was, we were writing the end of a war and we really did not want a Star Wars, Star Trek trumpet fanfare. Uh, medals all around kind of thing. That felt false. Wars don't end with a party. Some people who survive war go on with their lives. Some come away stronger. Some are shattered. But all are changed. We didn't want to lie to kids about that. The Applegate team, they were pretty bummed when readers reacted negatively. So Applegate writes this letter to fans uh, trying to you know rectify the situation or at least explain where they were coming from. 
So you don't like the way our little fictional war came out. You don't like Rachel dead and Tobias shattered and Jake guilt ridden. You don't like that one war simply led to another. Fine. Pretty soon you'll all be of voting age and of draft age. So when someone proposes a war, remember that even the most necessary wars, even the rare wars where the lines of good and evil are clear and clean end with a lot of people dead, a lot of people crippled and a lot of orphans, widows and grieving parents. Pretty powerful stuff. That was written in June of 2001. Fucking crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. All right. Well, let's, in a lighter note, let's talk about those goofy-ass covers, huh? We didn't right. get into that. 50 of the fi- 53 Animorphs covers were done by a named man named David Mattingly. Uh, David originally wanted to get into comics as a kid found that the comics biz demanded way too fast to turn around, whereas doing cover work allowed him to take his time on one single image. His biggest inspiration uh, growing up was Frank Frazetta, who is referred to as the, quote, godfather of fantasy art. I mean, you'll recognize his stuff the second you Google it. Uh, He's also, he's well known for his album and book covers. He uses a lot of matte art. uh, Matte? Matte. 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 And utilized a lot of matte art, which Mattingly explored a lot early on at the Art Center College of Design and ended up quitting to go work at Disney after calling up Peter Ellenshaw, who did a ton of matte painting work on, oh, you know, Star Wars. We definitely talked about the guy. He called him up, told him he was a huge fan, and... uh, Peter Ellenshaw was like, well, actually, we're looking for new people to come in. Do you want to come in for an interview? And the the craziest crossover. How do you feel about Jeff Bridges and space tidy whiteys living in a computer? <laughs> exactly, Jake. Give them the give them the weird ass crossover, the serendipitousness that came from this fact. Boom, 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 boom. It's time for another classic Wizard and the Bruiser. Goom, goom, goom. Crossover. David Mattingly worked on a series of matte painting backgrounds for a lot of Disney films, including Tron. Now, the thing about live act or about matte painting is it is the combination of live action with uh, just Mm -hmm. with paints, right, to create this really cool effect and to do different things, especially in film and things like that, to give this like realistic look to things. So he's already working with combining multiple layers of things to create a cool effect, right? So that was his passion moving forward. And then he gets into computers and stuff. uh, And that's how the the Animorphs gig comes about. As Mattingly tells it, it was a weird story. I had bought a computer in 1993, and I was one of the first illustrators to switch to the computer. uh, Scholastic art director Dave Tomasino knew that. The first three Animorphs books were done by another artist, but Scholastic wasn't happy with that artwork. They knew that they wanted someone to do morphing. So Dave called me up and he said, we heard that you knew how to do morphing. I'd actually never done any morphing at all. And I thought, what the hell? The first time Mattingly saw morphing himself done was in the film Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Mattingly said, morphing is where you're taking two images, creating splines around different parts of the image, and then cross-dissolve them while distorting the images together. The magic is these splines contain the shape so that rather than just cross-dissolving between two objects, you're cross-dissolving between two objects where all the shapes are constrained. It gives you very weird results. The software he used was a Macintosh program called Elastic Reality. Uh, If you want to get into the weeds with it, uh, on YouTube, LGR did a kind of uh, walkthrough of the software. 
Although ironically enough, uh, Mattingly himself said that like, despite the best efforts, no matter how hard you get those splines aligned so that the cat eye and the human eye cross dissolve and change shapes just perfectly, 50% of the resulting images were unusable and he'd have to go in and digitally paint anyway, which is why some covers look like super photorealistic and other covers look... uh, Painted by a guy. I'd also like to add that I personally tried to figure out what exactly a spline is. And after uh, quite a lot of uh, research, I couldn't tell you. Uh, You draw like the outline (laughs) of individual parts that you want to morph uh, in between. So like the mouth of the cat, on the cat image, you draw an outline of the cat mouth. And then you tag it so that the mouth of the human, so it knows that this part turns into this. And to make sure that these parts of the photos change in this way. And so if you line up the splines correctly, you get a girl turning into a cat. Or By a starfish. the way, have you uh, another thing in the books that they don't that you wouldn't know from the covers is um on the books it's always just kids in everyday clothes uh turning into animals. In the books they make it very clear that you have to wear morphing clothes which are uh, yes. for the girls skin tight leotards and for the boys tight t-shirts and bike shorts. Which I feel like just just make the kids naked. <laughs> no, Let's, uh, just fucking. It's just, what are you doing? Why Adds this the, whole oh, oh, I'm sorry. Layer. The space cube is like dungarees. Gross. Leotard. <laughs> hell yeah. Like what the fuck are you doing? What are you? Oh, the leotard has DNA. What the fuck are you? It's <laughs> stick to your guns, Applegate. I personally think a leotard does have DNA, but uh, it's neither here nor there. Uh, to get th- to collect the source images, by the way, Mattingly would do a photo shoot with the kids himself, uh, then either find a photo or like a reference photo for the animals, or like in the case of the cover of book number seven, he went to a zoo and photographed a bear himself and would then put it into the computer and pop out that cra- those crazy-looking images that we now know and love. I mean, one of the biggest... I feel like nostalgia meme blasts mm-hmm. of of recent memory uh, via the internet. I feel like was that picture of that girl turning into a starfish. <laughs> Everybody is mesmerized by it. And of course, please go right now and look at all the uh, classic covers. I mean, there's just something so deeply unsettling about that third, that middle image. The middle images about are halfway always between each. Always terrifying. Yeah. I did love, this was a fun little value add, is that uh, Mattingly would take the in-between forms and uh, they would reprint them in the margins of the books so it was like a little flip book. And I always thought that was super neat. I never read the books, but I would always, at the book fair, pick them up and go through the little flip books of the an- of the kids turning into the animals. But Jake and Holden... How? What about the graphic novels? Oh well, my thank god! Thank you, weed smoking eagle. I'd I'm rather glad talk you brought about that those up. than the video games. Holy shit! The video <laughs> games are dog shit. I don't even have anything for the video games. One is a bad Pokemon ripoff where uh, you can't walk into buildings if you're in an animal form. That one looked better though. That one actually looked reasonable than uh, as opposed to that terrible. It literally looked like Sneak King. It looked like a promotional fast food restaurant video Oh, the game. PlayStation 1 uh, action platformer d- did look like hot trash. Uh, apparently, the <laughs> PC game is like kind of a Western turn-based RPG, and that one's actually okay. like kind of okay. Interesting. But uh, the graphic novels is, I think, the newest way to 
uh, enjoy these books. I believe the third yeah, I think volume... the, be- the best way probably, and and what's cool about it too is that you know it's not it doesn't cover the whole series by any means, but I think it's only the first few books. But the, there's so much imagery there to play with, and the the graphic novel does quite a good job done by uh, the artist Chris Grine of representing a lot of those like more splashy elements. Oh yeah, no, Chris does an amazing job of like the true horror of the in between morphs, like seeing Tobias with like adequately gross, like crickle crack, snap, gurgle sound effects as he's turning into a hawk for the first time is truly unsettling. Like they absolutely lean into the body horror. And uh, it really is like, I honestly feel like there is no value lost when if you decide to pick up the graphic novels before you pick up the books. Um, if you have no interest in the books whatsoever, definitely give the graphic novels a shot. It is a really uh, just engaging way to kind of see what these stories are about. The darkness, the realism, the sweeping, uh, just kind of galactic horror of what these kids are actually confronted with. It's it's genuinely well done. And I'm even after we do this, I'm absolutely going to pick up the new volumes when they come out at this point. I am hooked. Hell yeah. Uh, then, of course, there is the TV series, which I was hoping was going to be more more good, bad than it was. It's really just kind of slog dog, bad, sad. Uh, the authors, I would say, desperately pleaded to have it be uh, regular animated because they knew that the just the expense of the morphs, as they described in the books, would be too expensive were a under-budget Canadian live-action series. And it kind of yeah. pans out that way. Yeah, it was made by the joyously named Protocol Entertainment. <laughs> they also did the uh, Goosebump series. And yeah, of course, this is all a Canadian joint. Uh, season one aired on YTV, a Canadian channel aimed at the young audience. And season two aired on Global. Of course, we caught it uh, outside of Canada. We caught it on Nickelodeon here in the States. They ran, they, they ran for a total of 26 episodes. Uh, one actor you may recognize from the show is Sean Ashmore, uh, who played Jake. He went on to star in stuff like the X-Men films as Iceman, Agent Mike Weston in the TV series The Following, and Lamplighter in The Boys. And, you know, we checked it out on our Sunday study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew every Sunday, $15 a month. Join us for that on Discord, where we cover the thing we're studying that week. And this time, yeah, we we uh, definitely ogled those covers for quite a while, but then we threw on the show. And honestly, yeah, I think it's just a lot of like vamping because they don't have the money to do a lot of the action. If if they had a budget at all and could have done, you know, been more paced like the books, it would probably be like a nonstop thrill ride. Yeah. But instead, it's a lot of people standing around a construction site literally just like trying to just fill that time up with whatever they can with whatever conversations they can Most come up of, with. The first episode is chock full of aliens and it's basically just little rubber heads on sticks being like puppeted in front of the camera. It's really yeah. just unfortunate. It's not the way. If you are curious about Animorphs as a story, you can skip the TV show very Yeah, easily. I'd probably go with the graphic novels. Um, but of course, honestly... If you want to go back to those books, they're fucking, they fly by, mm. you know? I mean, you could just totally devour uh, one and like within, you know. I am a slow reader, Holden. I am like one of the, I like read in my head slower than it would take to read aloud. And even I got through those books real easy. I, I don't know why I'm, it's not a brag. They're literally for <laughs> nine-year-olds. I, I'm just admitting weakness 
fucking pants down on the on the podcast right but now. But I think there's so much room for growth for this series now that I know what it, the deal is with it. I think or I think it, there's so much room for it to come back and capture a whole new audience of people. And yes, the graphic novels are definitely helping to do that. Also, by the way, shout outs to Bone and and mm. our weird year of picking like accidentally picking a bunch of scholastic topics, mm. but you know, I think Bone is really the reason why Animorphs got adapted to graphic novel because the success of that for Scholastic led to more graphic novel stuff for for them. And, and so that's really cool. But I think there's there's more that can be done here, uh, if not a TV show, a film. And in 2015, outlets reported that Universal Pictures were in the works to get a movie out the door via Silver Tongue Films, which is a production house created by Scholastic to turn their books into features. Cut to five years later, and we have a lot more info. Lole Lucese, uh, president of Scholastic Entertainment, said, the central themes of Animorphs have resonated strongly with kids for more than two decades. The time is right for a feature film that takes this captivating sci-fi adventure to another level for audiences today. K.A. Applegate seems to also have signed on, uh, signed off on this, tweeting, Animorphs has found the perfect home. However, Michael Grant announced on Twitter that they would not actually be a part of the film's production, citing, quote, creative differences. <laughs> he then followed up with another tweet being like, yeah, yeah, creative differences, but... Mm-hmm. That's not a bad thing. Like we just we we are not going to be a part of this thing, but we hope that it it's a huge success. And they just the didn't. Other. They were like, "All right, scene one: a child is screaming as his arm yeah. is being severed by a lion." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're just like, "How about we just not do that?" And uh, yeah, the but film you is didn't being even produced- get to my idea for the third act when it turns out that every person on Earth actually had to murder someone in subspace in order to fight for the right to be born. <laughs> Uh, the film is being produced by Scholastic Entertainment, Paramount Pictures, Nickelodeon Movies, and Pictures Start. And that was re- reported as of 2020. So hopefully it's still in the works. Still something coming down the pipe. I mean, I think if they did it right, it's a tough to- line to toe for sure. I mean, I that's the only thing. It, in order to do what those books did the best, which is really bring the pain, bring the intensity, but packaged in a way that, executives would sign off in it and there could be a franchise it's tough it's hard to see but if they pulled it off it could be something wholly unique and special you know what i just realized for children no the perfect form for this would be a fucking invincible style blood and guts yeah prestige streaming animated show yeah pretty much that is uh, if you really wanted the gut punch the holy shit I mean, they could just go straight up for the nostalgia adult audience but there's some some way they could get both you know, there's some way they could kind of pull it, pull it both. Kind of like we were talking about with the Sonic the Hedgehog movie is right now is the perfect time. You've got the the adults that are nostalgic for it have now kids that are of the right age to be initiated in. So if they jump on this at the right time and handle it right, mm-hmm. it could be something pretty special. But tough, man, because it really is that secret little like, holy shit, this is so fucked up. I can't believe like. I get to, like, my mom let me buy this at the Scholastic Book Fair. You know what I mean? It has to have that element, that edge to it. And I love it, man. I think this is such a cool topic. This was one of those topics I definitely went into just feeling very, like, unenthused about. And my Lord, was I not just having a blast reading about all the insane fucked up shit this series has offered. Like the warm thermal air that rises from a hot parking lot on a summer day. Animorphs fans have continued to uplift this series. Thermals are a big deal, Holden. They'll know. They'll know when I made a Thermals reference. <laughs> that like the it's a very narrow band of time when Animorphs fever rocked America. 
It was this magic moment, end of history, before 9-11, and it kind of got lost by the wayside. It never had its big comeback moment, and it's just this closely, not I don't want to say guarded, but it's this closely held and treasured secret to that generation. Uh, I hope you don't hear my fire alarm. I definitely hear your my fire alarm, My smoke detector Jake. has gone off. Anyway, let's close <laughs> it out. <laughs> Anything else from you, Weed Smoking Eagle? I'm depressed because I got high in the middle of the day. <laughs> That'll happen. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Wizard and the Bruiser. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. For $5 a month, you can uh, hear weekly bonus episodes. We cover um, a year in entertainment and one of our segments or one of our uh, one of our Long bonus apps. running critically acclaimed bonus episode series the year that was we've been working our way through the 2010s which has been very interesting as we're catching up to today and uh, also for $15 a month the Sunday study session is a blast we have a great crew who comes out every week we just sit around and hang out and watch or look over or uh, check out together uh, uh, play a video game together whatever it is we're covering that week we do for uh an hour and a half or so on Sundays, and it's a really nice time. Uh, that is patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. Uh, that's twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho for my streams. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Friday. It's always a blast. Please come by. It's the best. I had my last uh, gaming stream. I played some, played some Elden Ring and had some folks pop in and say what's up from as fans of the show, and it's always a blast to see you guys come out. Jake! Uh, Over on YouTube, I also stream now. It's uh, go to youtube.com slash puppet Jared, and the flagship stream is the uh, Cartoon Dumpster, a weekly deep dive into the most uh, horrifying, bizarre, yet captivatingly weird cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's a hell of a hang, and uh, a lot of uh, just... True gems. I feel like if you enjoy this show and what we're about, you will enjoy that stream. Thursday nights, youtube.com slash puppet Jared. Hell yeah. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com.